0: Amen. Let's remain standing as we read together from Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God,
1: Oh, we're doing our second series, second sermon in the series on Mark Plus, and, uh, and naturally we'll go to Philippians, right? Since it's the book of Mark. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that we now have of just listening and looking at your word and asking your help to help have us understand what's here. Lord, open our eyes and our ears. Help us to see. Help us to see you. In the, in the words that are here. And Lord, we pray that we would learn to walk in the way that you have walked and that we would learn to live in that way every day. We thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Humble, humility, all those kinds of things are things that uh, if, you, if you have to work hard at it, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, um, I don't know if you ever run into somebody who, you could tell somehow that they were just, you know, it didn't seem like they were real. You know, they they had decided that it was time to be humble, and so they became humble, until something came along to kind of tip that over, and then they weren't quite so humble anymore. Some people see humility as uh, you know, kind of you're all walking around with your head down, and you never meet anybody's eyes, and. And, um, you know, if anybody says anything to you, you, you know, you pretty much put yourself down. And, and again, I'm, I, I don't see that as, as true humility. And I want to kind of look at humility. The reason we're doing that is because from eternity past and, and from heaven, there had to be an incredible amount of humility for Christ to come and take on human form. So that's kind of where we're going. How can we learn from the humility of Christ is, is kind of what I want us to think through together this morning. Um, and entitlement is, is, um, is, is a word that I want to look at just for a second because I think it will help us in understanding humility. Entitlement is the belief that one is deserving of or entitled to certain privileges. Uh, so if I'm, if I'm entitled, I may go through life thinking that everybody owes me something. They owe me the fastest line at the grocery store or they owe me the the best service in the restaurant or they owe me to never run out of that product that I want because you know they owe me that's the whole idea of being entitlement entitlement is demanding rights that you probably don't even have and, and that's one of those things that we think about. We and, and sometimes we imagine rights and then we feel that those things that we've made up in our own minds that we've decided we are entitled to, when we don't get them, then there's problems and difficulties. Now, humility, I think, is the opposite side of that. It's the whole idea of, of not being entitled. It's the, It's the idea of not demanding your own rights or your own way. When we think of, that we deserve something or that we have a right to it, then that's where places come in where we have the opportunity to be arrogant or prideful. And if we believe everybody owes us, then we are not being very humble, and humility isn't part of what's going on in our hearts. So as Paul's talking to the church in Philippi here, he starts out, and I'm just starting in verse 3, and what we want to just look at. Christ as he came into human, uh, became a human being. Uh, Do not, Paul says, do nothing, verse 3, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. So don't be selfish and so ambitious and so vain and conceited that all you see is yourself and what you want or what you think you need. Each of you, he goes on to say, should look not only to your own interest. He's he's not saying you don't have interest. That's okay, you do. But don't make your interests the primary thing in the universe. Okay? So you have interest, but he says think of other people's interests as well. uh, Also the interests of others. And then Paul goes on to say, Now let me give you an example of the best humility you'll ever see. And we jump into that in verse 5. He says this to the Philippian church and directly to us as well. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What? Yeah, your attitude. Uh, What do we mean by attitude? Well, you know, what we think and how we feel and how we see ourselves. Uh, are Are we looking at ourselves with that vain conceit and selfish ambition? Or are we looking at ourselves and realizing that Jesus Christ is the one that is supreme, and it's not me, and I'm supposed to be like him. Um, so your attitude, Paul says, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. The whole idea of supreme humility and and love and selflessness, that's all wrapped up in, in the person of Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 6, "...who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God." Something to be grasped. And so he, he, he was God, fully God, totally, completely. Nothing, no part of him was not God. And, and that's the, the hard part in all this as we're thinking this through is we are finite creatures and we're thinking about an infinite God. And, and we're thinking about an infinite God who is a triune God. And so in that sense, we're, we're going through all of this and thinking through all of this and trying to sort it all out. So understand, it, Paul's trying to make it simple for us, and, and sometimes even, even then, it, it still is a little bit hard to figure it all out. So who being very nature God, he existed for all of eternity as God, he didn't merely resemble or look as God, but he is God in the fullest sense of the word. Who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Equality with God, the whole idea that um, he didn't feel like he had to kind of just stay in heaven to maintain his position. Um, He was one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he didn't consider equality with God in that sense of being in the same place and united the way they were. That, That was something to be grasped, or a better word is to cling to without wanting to let go. For him to become man, he had to let go of that whole perfect trinity that they had going. Now, again, here we're getting into, okay, how can you split the trinity in this three-in-one, one-in-three God? I, I, that's the hard part in all of this. Um, <clears throat> but in submission to the Father and the Spirit, he took on human form and came to live as a man in this world. Um, I'm going to give you a couple quotes here because I think they're really helpful. Scholars refer to the person and position of Christ when they're writing about him and his incarnation. So as to this person, Christ always was, is, and always will be equal with God. Okay, that's his person. As as his person, if you will, he always was, is, and will be. So Start to finish, in time, in eternity, he is always God. Positionally, now this is something a little bit different, so as, in, as to his person, he's these things, but positionally, the equality is a different kind. Okay, so he's equal with the Father and, and the Holy Spirit, but he's positionally equal with the Father and not enjoying the pleasures of heaven. So on one level, yes, he's still one with the Father and one with the Holy Spirit, but he's now limited by human shape and form. One example would be he was no longer able to be everywhere at one time. He was not omnipresent in his body. Okay, That was one of those things he could not be because of that. Um, <clears throat> but he didn't think it was worth clinging to and grasping for and hanging on to and not letting go. No, he, he knew this was the plan. He was coming. And taking on human form with all of those limitations. And that's the hard part for us. Because we don't understand what an infinite God is, we don't understand all that he had to go through to become man. And that's 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 hard stuff. And I still, sometimes as I study it, it just kind of goes around in my mind a little bit, trying to figure it out. But it says, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Now, <clears throat> this quote, he did not give up deity, okay? It says that he emptied himself, but he didn't give up deity. Uh, he laid aside his glory and he submitted to the humiliation or the humbling part of becoming a human being, being a man. So it's important for us to remember he didn't leave deity on the one side. He, he still was fully God, um, but he laid aside the glory that he had in heaven okay? and he laid aside the idea that um, he could be everywhere at once and all the other parts of, of the Godhead. So he, he took on those limitations. And again, remember, he's not like he's setting aside anything. He's taking on something that limits some of those qualities to being used in human form. So he emptied himself by taking on. And I think that's an interesting way to look at it. He made himself nothing or he emptied himself taking on the very nature of a servant. So taking on the whole idea that this is in addition to um, the quote is, he emptied himself by taking upon himself humanity, something he had never done before. He did not lay aside his deity, only his place in heaven, and that only temporarily. Okay, so as we're, as we're thinking through what, what the incarnation meant, that Jesus would come and, and, be, and become a man, remember, he's not saying I'm no longer God. He's still God. He's not able to use some of the attributes that he has in the human form, and yet he is God in every way, shape, and form. Um, he goes on. I just you to go read these verses again, and then we'll, we'll keep going. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, the implication is that even though Christ became a genuine man, there were ways in which he was still different from all of us. One of those things would be the fact that he had no sin nature. Um, I can tell you, uh, my parents from a very early age knew that I had a really bad sin nature. And if you've had your own kids, you you know they have a sin nature. And by the way, we all know we do have sin nature. Imagine not having that. When Christ came, he did not have a sin nature. And then it says in verse eight, um, I'm sorry, go ahead to that quote, Tim. I didn't, there we go. The form of God could not be relinquished or surrendered for God cannot cease to be God. I think it's important for us to think that through. But our Lord could and did take on the very form of a bondservant or a slave by choice when he entered human life by the incarnation. And so again, we're we're thinking that through and what it all means and what it all looks like uh, to a certain degree. And then verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so... Physically, he looked like a human being, um, he, but he got tired. He needed to eat. He felt, uh, felt all the things physically that everybody, everybody does. And, and all of that came when he entered and became a human being. So he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, walking willingly to Jerusalem and to Gethsemane and to Calvary. So even death on the cross is something that he was willing to do because that's why he came. So Jesus humbled himself. He veiled his glory, if you will, became man, took on the position of a slave, humbled himself even further by being obedient and going to the cross, knowing what he was going to go through. For us, he still went. I think that's really important for us to think through and to hang on to. Now, there's an implication here. Uh, verse 5, and this, this, this verse, a little short verse that you can memorize, and I guarantee you that if you do, that God will use it. <laughs> Look at the words here. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What? Yeah, your attitude, my attitude, my frame of mind, my mindset should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What was his mindset? Well, his mindset was humility. He came humbly into this world so the attitude of, the Christ, of Christ Jesus was and there's three things here uh, selfless he gave up his position he became flesh First um, 1 John, John 1.14 we saw last week the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and we've seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth and so the attitude, attitude of Christ is selfless um, the attitude of Christ is being a servant. And to be a servant, he gave up his rights. He gave up the whole idea of glory and honor of heaven. He gave up all of that. In Mark 10, 45, he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so to have the attitude of Christ Jesus or to have that same attitude of Christ Jesus it means we, we should be selfless and we should be willing to be a servant. And then the last part is he was sacrificial. He gave up his life. No one took his life, by the way, if you remember that. They nailed him to a cross, they hung him up there. But when it was time for him, after he had completed all that he was to do, he's the one that says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, and then he died. So he wasn't killed, he was crucified, but he gave up his life. And so he was sacrificial in that way. And in Mark 1045, again, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And I had to stop and ask myself, and I'm going to ask all of us, do we have the same attitude as Christ Jesus? When you're really angry at that person because they cut you off, what does this verse mean for that? You have the attitude, the same as Christ Jesus. Jesus. Am I self-focused? Am I seeing only myself, or do I focus on the needs of others? Do I serve others willingly, or am I always wanting to be served? Do I ever sacrifice for others, or am I counting on them to sacrifice for me? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. A friend of mine's wife developed a rather serious illness, and As a result, she wasn't able to do a whole lot uh, around the house. She could kind of watch the kids while he was at work, but then he would have to come home, and he'd fix dinner, and then he'd clean up, and then take care of the kids and put them to bed. And and this had been going on for a while. And um, he understood and knew that it wasn't his wife's fault in any way, shape, or form, but it was something that was just nagging at him and just wondering why, and on some level, angry at God, I'm sure, because he, he was saying, well, why in the world did you allow this to happen? And, and he, he confessed to me that, you know, he had a really horrible attitude about it. And, you know, he'd be out there in the kitchen cleaning and it, just a scowl on his face. And he was banging things around. And on one level, he knew that down deep, there was something had to change. And then he ran into this verse, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. He told me it was as if the Holy Spirit had stuck his nose right on that verse and said, this is for you. Apply this. And it was at that point in time the Holy Spirit challenged him to see all that he was doing as a privilege, that he had the privilege of doing these things. Instead of allowing himself to get angry and bitter and kind of, you know, throw off steam any way he could, he started praying this prayer. Lord God, thank you for giving me the privilege of serving. Help me serve well. Guess what changed? Him. Circumstances didn't change at all. But he was able to move into those situations and, and serve, knowing that this is what God had for him right then, at this point in time. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, very quickly, we cannot do this in our own strength. We need God's help the Holy Spirit working in us and shaping our thoughts and attitudes and as we surrender and learn more and more from Him how to walk the way He wants us to walk, then we can honestly say, my attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And so I leave that, that challenge for each of us. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ. Another implication in Philippians 2, we've got... to. Uh, Little bits and pieces of these verses. I just want to look. We see see that um, Jesus was by very nature God and then seven, uh, made himself nothing and then taking on the nature of a servant and humbled himself and became obedient to death. So he humbled himself and and here's just three quick ways that he did that. Took on human form. And we'll talk more about the humility that that took and how it was that he had to humble himself to be able to be A human being. So he humbled himself and took on human nature. He humbled himself and chose to become a slave. Um, He didn't come and and become the king of Israel. He came as a servant, as a slave. And then he humbled himself even more and went obediently to his death, becoming the obedient Son of God, the Lamb of God, who needed to die. He became that. Paul says it a little bit differently in 2 Corinthians 8 9. Um, He says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though He was rich, parenthesis, very nature God, though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, parenthesis, made Himself nothing. Why? So that by His poverty... That's the whole idea of being obedient even unto death. He could make you rich. So all of the riches of heaven and all the wonder and the glory that we will someday take part in is because of Jesus Christ becoming humble and going obediently to his death. Now Matthew tells us about uh, the mother of James and John who came to Jesus and asked for, for a favor. And the, what was that favor? Oh, well, yeah, we want James to sit on the right and John to sit on the left in, 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 uh, in your kingdom. Uh, Of course, when the other ten guys heard about this, they weren't all that excited about it either. And they became indignant, and there were problems all of a sudden that developed because people were trying to be uh, in positions of power and authority. And you know what Jesus said? Whoever wants to be great must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Kind of turned it all upside down, didn't he? And he said... Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. What an amazing, incredible God. And he said that and you know, spoke about these things, and within a few days from that point in time, there's that triumphant entry where Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and then shortly after that goes, goes to his death. And John tells us that on the night that Jesus was arrested, he celebrated Passover with his disciples, and, and uh, they were just having this amazing time at Passover and other things. But before any of that started, remember what happened? John 13, he uh, washed all of the disciples' feet. Remember that? Every single one of them took off his own garments, washed the dirty feet, even the feet of Judas. Can you imagine? He knew what was coming. And yet he still washed Judas's feet. And then he got up and John 13, 14 says, Since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done. Now again, it wasn't the, the necessarily the foot washing. I've, I've been in some churches that still as part of what they do. Uh, And that's fine. But I think the point here was be a servant. Be a a servant to others. Be a slave, if you will. Um, I've given you an example, and do what I did. Serve the people around you. Humility means several things. Let me just kind of hit this again. Humility means that we admit what we do not know. We don't pretend that we've got all the answers. We don't pretend that we've got it all together. Sometimes we just say, you know what, I don't, I don't have a clue, but I'm praying about it. Humility means we confess when we're wrong. And we don't say, oh, by the way, if. If shouldn't be in there. It's, you know what, I spoke to you in a wrong way. It was sin, will you forgive me? Just, just the idea of we confess the wrong that we do. And then we celebrate when others do really well. You know, it's, that's sometimes not all that easy. Celebrate when someone else does better than you do. And yet I think that's a little bit of what humbleness is all about. Humility means that we gladly share the credit, even when, when we did all the work. If they get some of the credit, we go, yeah, praise God. Praise God they get, they get some of the credit. And then <clears throat> humility means that we honestly rejoice with those who rejoice. It's a lot easier to rejoice inside when the person that you've been struggling with is going through a hard time. Humility says, hey, they're doing great. I may struggle with them, but I praise God for them. And I will thank God for them. So true, honest humility keeps us focused on Jesus and who he is, what he has done. Honest humility cannot get over the fact that Jesus did all of this for us. Imagine that. So what last week we talked about uh, in the beginning was the Word, and we talked about all that, told about John the Baptist, and this morning I wanted us to see the, the incarnation cost something. And, and we're going to move into Luke 2 now and just look at a couple of the scenes from Jesus' childhood. And what I want us to see is you've got an infinite, all-powerful God who is now in a womb for nine months, and then a baby, and then a toddler, and eventually a 12-year-old boy and this is the infinite god who's taken up so the creator and the sustainer of all things exists for 9 months in a womb imagine that creator sustainer of all things who's omnipresent and omnipotent becomes a human baby and then child and then a teenager now, before any of that happened, obviously, there was a whole bunch of stuff we just celebrated. Uh, Zacharias, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, that whole thing. And then Gabriel visiting Mary and telling her that she was going to have a baby. And then Mary going to see Elizabeth, spending three months. John the Baptist is born. At some point in there, the angel comes to Joseph and says, Listen, don't put Mary aside. She has been faithful to you. This baby is the Messiah. And so he takes her home, and he, um, he she becomes his wife. And then they travel to Bethlehem and he's born in the stable, angels and the shepherds and all that stuff happen. And then in Luke 2, 21 through 38, Jesus is presented at the temple. Uh, And and when he's at the temple, he meets Simeon, well, his parents meet Simeon and Anna and they prophesy and lay hands on him. Um, They go back to Bethlehem. The wise men show up at some point after that and they eventually get down to Bethlehem and then there's that angel that says to Joseph run go to Egypt now and in the middle of the night they go to Egypt Um, they were there and we're not sure for how long Um, scholars believe Herod died at the in the year 4 BC and that Christ was born in the two or three BC somewhere in there Um, so if he was born maybe a couple years they were in Egypt and then boom uh, Herod dies, and the angel again comes to Joseph and says, "Okay, it's it's safe. You can go home now." And so they come back and they settle in Nazareth. <clears throat> Luke two thirty eight. This is in, in two thirty eight. There's there's kind of a gap. Actually, it's in thirty nine. And the, Anna and Simeon are talking uh, about uh, Jesus and and. Um, I, God had spoke about this child, and and, and they were looking forward uh, to the amazing redemption of Israel. That's Anna and Simeon. And when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, the next sentence in Luke is they return to Galilee. But there is in between those two statements about a one to two year gap, because that's when they went to Egypt. Okay, so... Luke says, you know, they did everything that was required by the law, and, and that would mean circumcision on the eighth day, the purification of Mary on the 40th day, all of those things. And then the, after the wise men leave, they go to Egypt. And then the second half of verse 39 says, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and a child grew and became strong, was filled with wisdom and grace was upon him. Again, remember, the infinite God is this young child growing, maturing, learning, all of those things. Verse 40 tells us that he grew physically, and he was filled with wisdom, so he was growing mentally and filled with wisdom, and he was filled with grace, and the grace of God was on him. So spiritually, God's favor rested on him in a special way. He walked in fellowship with God. Verse 41 then tells us the custom of the family. Uh, Every year they would go to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover, or it would be the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that all got kind of lumped together. Now, for Jewish men, it was required that they go to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, for the Feast of Weeks, and for the Feast of Booths. But for many of them, it was not possible to make that journey financially. And so the one that most of them would choose was the Passover feast. And so I think we're maybe getting a little bit of a hint as to what station of life Mary and Joseph were in, uh, because it says every year they went to this feast. This was the one they specifically noted. And verse 42, when he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. And after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Now, In our minds, we're thinking, how could you do that? How could you leave your child behind? Um, You know, and that's us, our question. One of the things we have to remember here, Jesus had never been corrected, had never been punished for anything wrong that he had done. Because it just wasn't there to do. So stop and think about that. You've got a son who is 12 years old. He's he's becoming a man, and you're not keeping him by your side at all times. The other thing that happened is they would travel in large groups of people, a lot of families together. And so, you know, they're thinking, obviously, you know, the whole group is getting ready to leave. They're assuming that Jesus, as he always did, would be with them. They didn't go out looking for him and tell him to come to the caravan and get ready to go. Um, but thinking that he was in the company, they traveled for a day. So from Jerusalem, they traveled for a full day, hadn't seen Jesus. Uh, one of the suggestions I've heard is that um, in those days, sometimes they would travel with the women and children would be up front, setting the pace. Because if the men were taking the pace up front, they might just kind of leave them all behind. So the women and children were up front, setting the pace, and the men came behind, following along. And Jesus could have been part of either group. Still a child on one level, but still now becoming a man. And so each one may have been thinking, oh, well, he's with his mom or he's with his dad. Uh, however we think of that, and on many levels, it doesn't really matter. Um, but when they did find out that he wasn't, they headed back to Jerusalem to look for him. Uh, And they found him in the temple. Now, the three days, they traveled out one day, traveled back another day, and on that third day, they found Jesus. It wasn't wandering around Jerusalem for three days. So here he is, verse 46. They find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. That's incredible. That is part of the learning method. It was an asking questions, back and forth kind of a thing. And everyone who heard him, verse 47, was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And so for for three days, and I'm sure there were breaks for sleep and eating and that kind of thing, but for three days Jesus sat in the midst of the scholars and asked questions and answered questions. And they were astounded. Um, his parents get there, and Mom says, Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Eh, my mom would have said it differently, but she would have said something like that <laughs> if it was me who got lost. <clears throat> Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? What an incredible statement. And many people think that it's at this point in time or some, somewhere in this area that Jesus is beginning to realize I have something to accomplish for my Father in heaven. And and they placed this as one of those signposts that, that was pointing that way. Um, but his mom and dad still didn't get it. They knew that he was born of a virgin. They saw the angels. They saw uh, the shepherds come, the wise men come. So they understood the birth and all the miraculousness of that. They just didn't know where all that was going. There was no road map saying, you know, when he turns... X number of years, he's going to go out and start teaching and preaching. That was not something they had any way of knowing. I love that. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, again, it's not flippant, and it wasn't disrespectful. It's almost as if he's saying, I don't understand why you wouldn't know that this is where I'd be. And it wasn't being critical. He was just saying, hey, of course this is where I'd be. This is where I'm supposed to be. Verse 51 Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Again, that statement, obedient to them, did not mean that he was disobedient. It just meant that in the normal course of events, he was the son he was supposed to be. And verse 52 tells us, He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. What an incredible thing. Wisdom, stature, and favor with God and men. Now, he went back to Nazareth with his parents and was there for 18 more years. Okay, 18 more years before the age of 30 when he launched into into ministry. Um, I wonder what kinds of things happened then. There are many things that people think. At her age 12, he would have already been learning to do the work of his father, would have been learning to be a carpenter. And some people feel, since Joseph isn't mentioned after Jesus is a man, that at some point in here in these 18 years, Joseph passes on, which means that Jesus, as the oldest son, would be responsible for you know, working and taking care of the family. And it wasn't until his brothers were old enough to take over the business that he was able to launch and do the ministry that he came for. What do we take away from this? Again, remember, I'm thinking of the incarnation and remembering the fact that God took on the form of a slave and became obedient to death. And I was trying to imagine how big that leap was from eternity into time, from infiniteness to finiteness. All of those things... How, how in the world does all that work and fit? And then thinking of this verse, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Why? Because he was in very nature God, but he didn't consider equality with God as something to hang on to and never let go of. He knew what was required of him when he became a human being. He knew what was required of him in the sense of doing the hard and difficult things that he was being called to do. <clears throat> now I've had many, many surgeries and thankfully they all accomplished what they were supposed to have accomplished. And, and, and in none of those did I ever have a time frame where I wasn't able to do for myself the things I needed to do. Uh, a couple of years ago when I ended up in the hospital here in Belton for 11 days, um, that's a different story. There's a lot of things I could not do for myself. Boy, that was hard. Very frustrating. Very much wanted to be able to just do what I needed to do and not constantly be calling for someone to come and help me do whatever it was that needed to be done. And that's a very simple, poor example. That's me not being able to do everything I want to do. But think of the eternal God in a human form. Think of the eternal God going through all of the physical things that we go through. And he humbled himself in order to be able to do that. That's kind of what I want us to take home today. When the infinite, sovereign, all-powerful God of the universe takes on human form, he's humbling himself to become an unborn child. He's humbling himself to be born as a baby. He's humbling himself to learn to sit up and walk and talk and eat. He humbled himself so he could learn to read the Torah. He humbled himself so he could learn to care for his brothers and sisters. He humbled himself as he learned to use the tools in his father's workshop. He humbled himself as he provided for his mother and his brothers and sisters. He humbled himself as he served people who had desperate needs and demands on his time and on his ability. He humbled himself by willingly, silently going to the cross to die. He humbled himself. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the death, even death on the cross. I'm going to read a couple. Parts from a poem that I read in the Christmas Eve service this year, but it just really fit. Um, By Joseph Bailey. Today I will sing praise to the Father who stood on the heaven's threshold and said farewell to his Son as he stepped across the stars to Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and Calvary. And I will praise the infinite, eternal Son, who became a most finite, a baby, who would one day be executed for my crimes. Praise Him in the heavens. Praise Him in the stable. Praise Him in my heart. i go back to verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. We sing this song occasionally. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to act justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly, and to walk humbly with your God. We are called to remember our Savior Jesus Christ, and we're called to remember the fact that He left heaven and humbly came to this world to do what He was supposed to do. May we turn away from selfish ambition and vain conceit and seek to walk in the ways that He asks us to do. <clears throat> May we have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the fact that you that you came humbly to serve, not to be served. Lord, I pray for myself this week and my brothers and sisters here that we would Seek to have the attitude which you had in life. And we know we can't do it without your help, so we ask for that. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
2: Amen. <clears throat> Let's stand and respond with one more hymn this morning.
0: reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and in earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father let's pray Father God you have humbled your son and he chose to come to earth to die how could we not give more love to thee How could we not walk in humility when you humbled yourself in such a way? How could we not forgive when other people have depended upon you and accepted your forgiveness that you paid for? How could we not forgive knowing the price you paid for forgiveness? Thank you Lord, help us to humble ourselves as we go forth this week, help us to live And walk humbly before our God. In your name, amen.